0: Um, today i want to share a little bit uh, about a recent revelation that i've had uh, in regards to the character of god and it actually came to me through a whole bunch of different situations a couple of weeks ago sandy was preaching about uh god being our friend jesus being our friend and that coincided with a whole bunch of uh stuff that i was reading and things that i was hearing from all these different people and i think it was a very fortuitous time for me to actually get a revelation And one of the stories uh, from the Bible that affected me the most in regards to this was the story of Mary and Martha uh, when Jesus went around to their place to hang out. Um, I had heard many times before, I mean for for a very long time, throughout different times at school and churches and whatever, that God is my friend. But unknowingly, I had put God in a box that kind of ignored that aspect of Christianity. So, while I'd heard it over and over and over again, and I believed it, I just kind of ignored it without realizing it. And today I want to kind of talk about that mistake that we all too easily make of putting God in a box, and just because we hear something a bunch of times, we don't actually really hear it, or it doesn't come in and affect us on a heart level and change us. I was just talking to Pete outside before about the way that um, sort of the mystery and the, uh, the incredible nature of God... Can get lost on us a lot of the time. We don't really, we can't, it's so hard for us to understand God that we can hear stuff over and over and over again, particularly stuff from the Bible, and we just kind of default to, oh, that's the Bible, I've heard that before, yeah, I believe that, but it doesn't affect us the way that I believe it probably should. So, everyone here has a concept of God. We have concepts of God in our head about what He's like. And all of these ideas are shaped by a multitude of different things, our backgrounds, our parents, our friends, the Bible, of course, and importantly, our own personal experiences of God. We all have ideas in our heads, but it's important to realize that none of us have complete understandings of God. I believe it's really important that we realize this. Our understanding and concept of God is really only scratching the surface of who he is and what he's like. Our understanding will never be complete while we're on this earth. We may think that we've got it sorted sometimes. We might think, yeah, I've got this sorted out. I really understand the whole thing. And this is kind of true because hopefully we will continue to grow in our understanding of God. Through your relationship with Him, He will kind of reveal more of Himself to you and you will grow in your understanding of Him, which is great. But the understanding will never be 100% fully complete. There's a really important reason that this is the case. Because it's impossible. Because if we ever fully understood God, we would actually become superior to Him. I spoke a few months ago about how science and deconstructionism is all about trying to control things. That which we can fully explain. When we can fully explain something, when we can fully rationalize and understand it, that's by definition become something that we are smarter than, something that we are superior to. So it's a really important thing that we realize that we can't understand god by very nature of who he is we will never have a full understanding of god at least not while we're on this earth because think about it god created us he created the world he created the universe in fact god created all physical matter god's a non-material being and before he spoke the universe into existence there was no material things ever anywhere And then all of a sudden, physical space existed, time existed, and matter existed out of nothing. We can't really get our heads around that at all. There was nothing forever, kind of, and then something happened, and then there was everything all of a sudden, all the physical stuff from a non-physical place. How does that even work? Because our immediate question is, of course, well, where is God? And that question assumes a physical reality, which God isn't constrained to. And of course, it gets weirder as well when we remember that God created time. So before time existed, God existed and created time. But I don't know when, at what point of time he did that. <laughs> That's a weird thing because time didn't exist. It's crazy. My point here is to try to explain and try to help you to realize that God is big. He's going to be bigger than what we're going to be able to fully understand. God, by very definition, needs to be bigger than us. Ephesians 3 actually speaks of this when it says, I pray that you may have your roots and foundation in love, so that you, together with all God's people, may have the power to understand how broad and long, how high and deep is Christ's love. Yes, may you come to know his love, although it can never be fully known, and so be completely filled with the very nature of God. To him, who by means of his power working in us is able to do so much more than we can ever ask or even think of. So God is bigger. We won't fully understand And yet, we still try. We try to understand Him. Now, understanding God's not a bad thing. And as I said earlier, our understanding of God should increase. But there should be a childlikeness to our understanding and our learning. Because God's not going to be constrained by what we expect all of the time. Unfortunately, often our attempts to understand God are not actually so that we'll become closer to Him. Even our attempts to understand God and become closer to Him have been affected by our heart, our deceitful heart, and by the fall and our own idolatrous nature. And often we transfer our desire to understand God into a desire to control God. Sometimes we want to understand Him just so we can put Him in our little box of understanding. He becomes a lot easier to manage, a lot less dangerous, and a lot easier to ignore when we want to ignore Him. Now, this happens most of the time not by design, not through planning. We don't go out of our way to uh, put God in a box, uh, but it's kind of subconscious. Like most idolatry, we don't know what's happening until someone points it out to us. I'll actually always remember the time that I first heard Mark Driscoll talk about idolatry in this fashion with this statement that's up there. He said, even a favorite Bible verse can become an idol. And the first time I heard that, I was like, what? How can the Bible become an idol? How can the Bible which tells us about God or a particular verse become an idol? I'd never considered it before. But perhaps you know people that always quote the same verses to you over and over and over again. It's like they only actually return to certain books in the Bible or even certain passages in the Bible that they like. Maybe this is you. Maybe you do this. I know I've done it in the past. I definitely have. Because we have a tendency to do it, I think. Maybe the verse that you like is, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's a nice verse if you want to steal one and just take, that's my God verse, I'll take that one. Or perhaps, conversely, yours is counted all joy, my brothers, when you meet various uh, trials of various kinds. That's a verse as well. Now the two verses seem to be a little bit contradictory to each other, so hopefully you can see what the problem is here. See, we have a God who is big, but when we take aspects of Him that we like and we separate that away from all of God, when we take the things that we've experienced and only start to focus on them, we actually lose sight of the full God. In truth, we actually start to fashion our own God, the God of tribulations or the God of hope, depending on the verse that we like. We fashion our own God the way that we want Him to be. You might know this from your own life. Maybe in some of your own experiences, you've had ideas of God as being one way, And then all of a sudden that idea was shattered or at least realigned a little bit. And hopefully that has happened to you. If the concept you had of God when you first met him is the same one that you have now, either you had a really large and clear concept back then when you first met him or you're not growing in your faith and relationship with him that much. Think about when you got married. Before you got married, you knew your spouse, but you didn't really know them. Not like you know them now. Yeah? not like you know them with kids and with late nights and with working hard and with always being busy through sickness if your understanding of your spouse had stayed the same as it did on that day before you married them and now 50 years later, well maybe not 50 years later, I don't think there's anyone there, a long time later then I think you could probably make the claim that you haven't really grown together relationally at all because because there's so much more to learn about people The difficult thing about our understanding of God can be that a lot of the time, He seems at first glance, at a casual glance, to be a little bit contradictory. Because you might say, My verse that I'm going to hold on to is, My heart is deceitful above all else. And I might say, I've been given a new heart. Both of them biblical, a little bit contradictory, perhaps. You might say, God wants to prosper me. I have a verse to prove it. But I say, But look around, there's plenty of poor Christians. So what does that mean? The important part here to grasp is that God is huge. He's multifaceted. He's not contradictory. Not at all. There's no contradiction in God. He never changes, but he is really, really big. Much bigger than we can understand. God is bigger than just one side. He's not black and white. He's infinitely bigger than us, and he will continue to grow us and stretch us in our understanding of him. And we should never slip into the mistake of thinking that we've got it nailed, that we've got God sorted out. Obviously, there's some things that we know for a fact. Biblical things. God is love. God is just. God is sovereign. He is holy. These are characteristics of God that can sometimes, though, seem a little bit at odds with each other. See, for instance, if he's loving, he should love everyone and he shouldn't send anyone to hell. But then he wouldn't be just. So we've got the, con- the concept of God being love and the concept of God being just and at first glance, they seem a little bit at odds with each other. But, of course, we know we need to hold these things in tension. We need to realize that his justice is loving and his love is manifested through his justice. These tensions can be a little bit difficult to understand sometimes and to to discuss. And one of the ways that I think is really helpful to discuss them, and I'm sure you all saw it coming, is by talking about Narnia. I love some of the examples that Lewis gives in Narnia to describe some of the incredible ways that God can appear at first to be contradictory, but then we see in the grand scope of things with an eternal perspective that God is so much bigger than we can possibly understand. When C.S. Lewis uh, was asked by someone why he wrote Christianity into his stories, he answered like this. I thought I saw how stories of this kind could steal part a certain inhibition which had paralyzed much of my own religion in childhood. Why did one find it so hard to feel as one was told one ought to feel about God or about the sufferings of Christ? I thought the chief reason was that one was told one ought to. An obligation can freeze feelings and reverence itself did harm. The whole subject was associated with lower voices, almost as if it was something medical. But supposing that by casting all of these things into an imaginary world, stripping them of their stained glass and Sunday school associations, one could make them for the first time appear in their real potency. Could one not thus steal past those watchful dragons? I thought one could. So I want to have a look at a few passages from Narnia that might help to steal past those watchful dragons that might be in your mind that you don't even know are there. You may have heard things over and over and over again. And it's never sunk in. And we want to take, I just want to try to take another route to get there through an imaginative, creative way. Probably the best way, or the best book for this out of the Narnia series is The Horse and His Boy. I don't know if you've read The Horse and His Boy, but I really, as always, encourage you to read Narnia. Read it to your kids, and you'll learn so much for yourself as well. The book tells the story of Shasta and a horse win, journeying with Aravis and Bree to Narnia. Along the way, Shasta has many different experiences and often feels as though he's been hounded by a lion. He's spending a night alone in a graveyard at one point and he's surrounded by jackals. They're approaching him, but eventually they get scared away by a lion roaring. This, of course, is very comforting and very scary at the same time for Shasta because there's no more jackals, but now there's a lion. He thinks he sees the lion coming. However, it turns out to be a cat who comes and sleeps alongside him. Later, he's riding along and he's hounded by a lion or what would seem like many, many lions all around him. And he's terrified by them. And then much towards the end of the book, a lion actually chases them down and at one point even scratches Aravis' back. And when Shasta meets Aslan at the end of the book, Aslan says this to him. I was the lion who forced you to join with Aravis. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight, to receive you. And then Shasta responded, Then it was you who wounded Aravis? It was I. But what for? Child, said the voice. I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. This multifaceted appearance of God, that is spoken about through Aislinn in Narnia, I think it kind of rings true in life. Almost all of the time we don't see it until afterwards when God points it out to us, but we can see his hand when we look back in the past. We can see his hand moving through our lives, directing us in in different ways. It's only after, it's only because of that, I think that we can truly say that God works all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his name. Aslan in this book takes the appearance of a comforter, but also as a judge, as a terrifying lion who drives Shasta in the right direction through an appropriate fear of lions, but who does so because he loves him and he knows what he needs the best. And we can begin to see as well that it's important for us to have this this good approach to this multifaceted aspect of God. Shasta asks, then, was it you that hurt Aravis? And Aslan did. He scratched her deeply on her back. Aslan replies, that's not your information to know. And we should be really careful not to put our own experiences of God onto other people and say, this is what God will do. This is what God is like because this is what happened with me. Before we go any further, I'm not getting into a kind of relativism here. God is not random. He will not act outside of his nature and the nature that's revealed in the Bible. But you know from your own experience that different people experience God in different ways and that all of those different ways can still be biblical. Sometimes, maybe even most of the time, we're not going to understand what God does in two other people and why he does it. But it's vital that we have an eternal perspective and we realize our own smallness. We don't see the whole picture. 1 Corinthians 13.12 says, What we see now is like a dim image in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. What I know now is only partial. Then it will be complete, as complete as God's knowledge of me. Another great example which I love in Narnia is the contrast between two approaches to the character of God. The first example is from the silver chair. A young girl named Jill is transported to Narnia where she sees Aslan drinking from a stream. The text up here is a bit, bit small, sorry, but uh, I'll read it as well. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realised that she might, have, might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without it, noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat, girls, she said. "'I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms,' said the lion. "'It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. "'It just said it. I daren't come and drink,' said Jill. "'Then you will die thirst," said the lion. "'Oh dear,' said Jill, coming another step nearer. "'I suppose I must go and look for another stream then.' "'There is no other stream,' said the lion. Jill is terrified of Aslan. And when she does finally stoop down to have a drink, she can hardly manage it because she's trying to look at Aslan the entire time because she's so nervous. Now, I think that this is particularly poignant when it's compared to what the horse Wynne does when she meets Aslan at the end of the horse and his boy. Then Wynne, though shaking all over, gave a strange little neigh and trotted across to the line. Please, she said, you're so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. Dearest daughter, said Aslan, planting a lion's kiss on her twitching velvet nose, I knew you would not be long in coming to me. Joy shall be yours. Jill was terrified of being eaten, and Wynne wanted to be eaten. In both things, the eating is the same, but the approach of the individual is different. They both saw Aslan differently. Jill saw the terrifying only, whereas Wynne had a much more complete view of him. And she was still shaking all over. She was still scared, but she knew that he was a good lion, just not a tame one. For me personally, this whole putting God in a box thing has been a bit of a struggle in my life. My natural bent is to want to understand things. I like to argue and debate and learn things and hopefully come to a conclusion. But often this means that when I do come to a conclusion, I'm not that willing to listen to other people's opinions or accept that there might be different opinions, that those conclusions might be right as well. I become very um, stoic in what I believe and that's the thing that I'm going to believe and that's it. But this is a really dangerous position. Because it automatically puts God in a box and says, I've got it all sorted out. But of course, as we've already discussed, that can't be the case. God won't fit into the boxes that we make for him. And as I said earlier, the big revelation that's happened for me recently has been the contrast between servant and friend. You may have heard one of the expressions that Pete has used often here at church, which is being on the performance treadmill. You run and run and run, but you never get there. I think this treadmill exists for people a lot of the time when they put God in a box and actually by putting God in a box they put themselves in one as well. They put God in the master box and they put themselves in the servant box. There's a great example of this at the time when Jesus went to hang out at Mary and Martha's house in Luke chapter 10. As Jesus, said, as Jesus and his disciples went on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha in, uh, welcomed him in her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat down at the feet of the Lord and listened to his teaching. Martha was upset over all the work she had to do, so she came to the Lord and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to come and help me. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled over so many things, but just one is needed. Mary has chosen the right thing, and it will not be taken away from her. This is the contrast between servant and friend. Martha had Jesus in a box. He was the master and by doing so she put herself in one as well. She became the servant. Let's imagine for a moment the way that these two people, the friend, the person who's got the friend revelation and the person who's got the servant revelation could look at each other. The full servant, the person who has not made the transition into friendship with God, they often degrade the idea of the friendship. They might say things such as they don't have a full understanding of the glory of God. They ask for and expect cheap grace. They do nothing for God. They just live with his benefits without loving and living for uh, for others. It's all take, 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 all about me. Along with these thoughts are their own self-righteous thoughts. I've got it all sorted out. I know what it is to be a Christian. Yes, it's a relationship, not a religion, but there's still work to do, and I will get that work done. I have a higher understanding of God because I have a fear of God, and that is the beginning of all wisdom, which means I am wise whereas the mere friend of God is so simple in their approach. Perhaps these are things that you've thought sometimes about other people. Maybe not all of it all of the time, and if it was that blatant, you'd probably catch yourself out. But maybe little little bits of this have gotten into your thinking in the past. Then, of course, you've got the flip side, which has got the potential to be just as poisonous. The friend of God can look at the servant, the person working hard, and say, Look at them work. Don't they know that God doesn't need us to work? He doesn't want us to be anxious. He just wants us. He wants to be in relationship with us. I can understand why they do it, but if only they had a more complete understanding of God, they would realize they don't need to be working so much all the time. They just need to spend time with God. I've got it sorted out. I have the understanding. I'm right. Now, I don't mean to imply at all that this is what Mary thought. There's no reason to think that that's what she was thinking. But you can see how taking one side of the coin and ignoring the other side, can lead to this deceit, this self deception. God is so big, so indescribable, and He has so many different characteristics that we have to be really careful that we don't elevate some over others, particularly if it's an unbiblical elevation. These characteristics of God, when we grab one and we hold it only or hold it above all the others, they can start to become distorted. And that's what Martha was doing. She was holding one aspect of God, namely that he calls us to labor with him and work for him and alongside him, and she was holding it above all the others. She held servant above friend. God does want you to work. We're called to serve, to serve God and to serve other people. But when these two aspects, of these two aspects of servant and friend, it really would seem that friend takes precedence over servant. John 15, 15 says... And you are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer because servants do not know what their master is doing. Instead, I call you friends because I've told you everything I heard from my father. There's two really important things to recognize here. Firstly, when you become friends with God, the service doesn't stop. It's just not the service of an obedient servant anymore. It is changed into the service of a loving friend. It kind of changes from the way you serve your teacher to the way you serve your spouse. We serve God not out of blind obedience, but out of loving relationship. Secondly, our friendship with God means that he communicates with us. And that links in to our service. One example I read was that Martha was in the kitchen making sandwiches that Jesus did in order. There's work to do. God has work for us but we need to be listening to him and we need to be listening to him to do the work that he asks us to do. Ephesians 2 says this, God has made us what we are and in our union with Christ Jesus he has created us for a life of good deeds which he has already prepared for us to do. And the workload is light. The burden is shouldered by jesus god asks us to work for him not as servants but as friends and he also commands us not to be anxious anxiety jealousy confusion pride these are the results of working out of a purely servant mentality rather from a friendship mentality this is what happens when we think i have to work hard to serve and please god rather than hearing from god out of relationship with him the day-to-day tasks that he has for us and relying on him for the strength to do them So this isn't a message encouraging laziness, telling you you don't have to do anything. I'm not saying there's no work to do. I am saying get your priorities right. Find God first. Communicate with him. Jesus wants you to pursue him and want him the way that Mary did. Just wanting to spend time with him. If you feel as though you're working constantly for God, make sure you're where he wants you to be, pursuing the things he wants you to pursue. Get off the performance treadmill and refocus on him. And examine yourself. Ask yourself, are there aspects of God that I like to ignore because it suits me better? Have I fashioned God after my own image or am I open to the God of the Bible being who he is and revealing himself to me? Do I have an incomplete view of him? And what are the parts that I haven't considered? Do you consider him to be your friend, your father, your Lord and Savior, your master? He's all of these things. Your understanding of God should continue to grow as your relationship with him does. So pray and ask God to help you discover what boxes you've put him in and realize that he doesn't fit in those boxes. I'll pray. Jesus, thank you that you reveal yourself to us. Thank you that you love us and you want to be our friend. And I pray for everyone in this room that the boxes that we've put you in That we automatically by default don't realize that we put you in. That you would reveal to us aspects of your character and your nature that blow apart those boxes. That we would start to have a fuller, growing revelation of you. That we would be surprised by your compassion when we think that you're only hard. That we would be amazed at your grace. That we would see you as holistically as we can and that you would continue to grow us and shape us that we wouldn't put you in a box and ignore parts of you, that there wouldn't be times in our lives where we say, God doesn't get involved with this because that's not the God that I've created. I pray that you would minister to everyone here that your Holy Spirit would help us all to see the constraints that we've put on you, the box that we've put you in, and that you would release us from that and that we would see you truly as our friend. Amen.